everyone, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today, my guest is Colin Stetson. You're probably familiar with Colin and his work for Hereditary, but not only does he have a lot of other great scores, he has a fairly big and extensive back catalog of solo work that is quite strange and unorthodox and heavily features his lead bass saxophone. But today we're talking about his score for the new Netflix film, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is a direct sequel to the 1974 original, and in some ways is a spiritual successor, musically, moving from Wayne Bell's almost pure noise and sound design score to something as equally unorthodox. And I know the film so far has been pretty divisive, Some people absolutely love it, and I have seen some people call it one of the worst movies they've ever seen. But, no matter what your reservations may be, I highly recommend giving the score a listen. It's about as raw and brutal as film music gets. And I know that might not be up everyone's alley, but it's certainly worth a listen. Of course, you can find more about Colin on his website or on social media and watch the film on Netflix, and hear his music anywhere digitally or on vinyl through Waxwork Records. And now if you're enjoying the show, please, of course, leave a rating, leave a review, send me an email and let me know. It's always nice hearing from people. Now, without anything further, sit back and I hope you enjoy. Colin, I'm so glad you could join me. How have you been? I've been very well. Um, Yeah, thanks for having me. Excellent. I'm I'm so glad you could join me. I'm... uh... I've been a big fan of yours for a while, so having the opportunity is really exciting. Thank you so much. That's great. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll jump into talking about your new film, the upcoming Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But first, and much more importantly, I I noticed that you actually were born and raised in Ann Arbor, and I actually lived there for seven years too. Really? You went to school? Yeah, yeah. I went there for uh, well, I, I grew up in Southeast Michigan, but I went there for undergrad and grad school as well. Excellent. I did my undergrad there as well. I spent the first 22 years of life there, and great town. Uh, very different yeah. town today than, than it was. I left in 98, I think. Yeah, 98. Um, very different town, but, uh, but that, I think the same could be said for any college town. Right, yeah. Any, anywhere after 20, 25 years. Yeah. When I, when I left, there still were... The, the remnants of like the old punk rock era and there were still were these spaces, um, these performance spaces that still got kind of like edgy, noisy sort of uh, local stuff um, going on and, and tons, you know, maybe, maybe the, by the time I left there weren't tons of house parties, but that was just the, the culture when I was growing up um, all through high school playing these tiny, mm. tiny, um, just absolute fire hazard death traps of, <laughs> of basement um, parties where just kids were just crammed into, into them. I remember there was this one that was basically no more than a hallway with a, with a tiny stairwell up at one, at one end where the stage was on the long end and it really was, I mean, barely three feet deep. The drummer, I mean, almost didn't, fit on there and the whole band was just like in a line um and the rest of the audience was in a pit that you know couldn't have been 10 feet 10 feet deep and then then, you know and just stretched out wide like that and um we had enormous sweaty fun uh, for a lot of years all the way through college and stuff so it was a good it was a great place to to cut uh, one's teeth musically speaking we just just got to play that's that's awesome and and yeah i haven't i haven't gone to house parties there in a while but you know (laughs) unless uh 
unless you really looked, you couldn't really find anything like that. Yeah, no, nor have I. I, I haven't been frequenting yeah. the, the, the um, Ann Arbor <laughs> uh, college house parties to see it recently. <laughs> but I mean, so what was, and I didn't even intend to get on this track, but I mean, what was that like cutting your teeth on you know, a really tiny, intimate DIY scene like that? You know, we were in music school, and of course, you know, the, the vast majority of us were all studying classically at the time, but we were also branching out. We were learning about everything. We were learning about just music from all over the world and, and, and constantly listening. And if we weren't at school, we were together listening to music or in rehearsal, writing and, 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 and rehearsing new music. And there wasn't any sense of a of a, um, a restriction in, in terms of parameters of genre or style or anything like that. Um, it was really just everybody was doing as much as they possibly could. Um, mm. Just this glut of absorbing everything that we that we could in our ears and then uh, exhausting ourselves with involving our efforts in industry, like on, on our instruments, like growing through them in all, in all this different music. And so through college, like I think by the end of it, I was in, you know, on, this is on top of the ensembles and things that you're, in in university but there were i think five or six different bands that i was a member of and and we were in all those groups many of them shared the same different configurations of players because we were all you know and, and one of them could be something really abstract hard-hitting and, and noisy and then another could be much more you know like for a stretch we were doing you know we had this very traditional irish thing going on that was uh, this loads of fun but it was just like that we whatever we wanted to do we simply did it and then start and we you know we had cultivated relationships with all the club owners and stuff around town and around the area and so we, we just we played we we were gigging most nights of the week and um that that kind of thing i think is probably i mean i can't say either way because i'm I, I don't have a whole lot of contact with with younger musicians but it seemed like that was something certainly not unique to that time because it was something that you know talking to older players it was something that they all got up to it probably in a much bigger way for longer after school and and, and through their 20s but for us uh, it, it it definitely um, looking back it's it's just like this very precious time of being able you know fortunate enough to have yeah not only the time to devote to all of that kind of communal searching and um and uh, exploration, but to do it with, um, to, to have access to these brilliant players and minds, and many of whom, probably most of whom, I'm still count amongst my best friends and collaborators even now. So it was a very good stretch of, uh, of upbringing there. That's awesome. And it sounds like that has really carried through just because of how open you are and how naturally it seems that you have experimentation, not just with sound, but with the use of your instruments. I mean, you listen to your score for like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Hereditary or going back to your earlier work, like solo works. And there's just a lot of like weird unorthodox shit in there that sounds really good. TCM is about as weird and unorthodox shit as you, as, as I could get. <laughs> um, I was, do, I was doing an email interview earlier this week and somebody, you know, one of the questions was, tell me about your, your use of, chainsaws and other um, machines in this score and I and I read it at first and I kind of gla I just glanced over it and then I went back to it and I was like, no that's a real question he, he actually thinks from listening to this that it's that I recorded machines and it's, it, that's kind of cool the fact of it is that there's 
the, the score, I could, I could list the things, the sound sources that, that I used to make that whole score, and uh, most of them are just sitting behind me right now. There's a contrabass saxophone called a tubax, a pile of about 25 antique Tibetan singing bowls, uh, my Yamaha upright piano downstairs, and then a few other saxophones and, and you know, woodwinds, and then with a little bit of an old junker viola uh, <laughs> um, that I have. Um, but that's basically it. The point of it, I mean, I, I, I adore the, the search, and I love finding my way to a sound, to, to a kind of character through all these backdoor avenues. If you want to make it feel like it's this kind of living, breathing machine with, you know, all the, you know, just this kind of rusty gears and like old dried blood flaking off, what's the fun in trying to record the, the actual machine coming through it through a, through a, a more, con well, I mean, it's, not, it's still not conventional, but through conventional um, instrumentation and then morphing, just twisting and stretching and manipulating those sounds to get to a place where they truly don't resemble they, they don't resemble where they came from whatsoever and then they can they can kind of hearken up in the listener's experience like you're going to then contextualize it however it is that you contextualize it based on your own experience rather than everybody looking at a thing and going that's a chainsaw or that's a violin or that's a piano like obscuring the source of the sound makes it so that it can just be well in, in my mind it can simply be a vehicle for the affectation of mood of experience and it can it, it can then um, affect one's state of mind and one's emotion emotional senses i love that kind of thing and this one i went Definitely in the context of everything that I've done, I, and I always do a lot of, like a, a fair amount of manipulation when it comes to building scores, but this one went much, much further to, to the degree that there is almost nothing that happens musically that isn't in some way just wrenched from its original form. And, and, and then the idea, I, I thought about this as I was kind of wrapping things up and going through mixes, like the idea of ever performing something like this not because it's so abstract or improvised or something, because it, it really isn't. Like these things are not like nothing is improvised. Every single bit in there, and some of them are like my, I work really densely, and some of these sessions are just they're just colossal. They go on for forever. They, they're just depths of of tracks, but um, it's all in, entirely organized um, and all entirely in, intentional. And so the composition of it is something that could be codified. But how would you? Everything would have to be. You'd have to find your way back to some, and this could, I guess, could be kind of fun to to then approximate the instrumentation that it would take to now bring to life this thing that is no longer really of an instrumentation because it's been twisted so much into these other forms. So there, there's a longer, <laughs> more, more <laughs> tangential um, answer to your question. But yeah, with that, I guess taking a lot of largely conventional instruments and then morphing them into almost unrecognizable forms. Do you think there really becomes a at that point a difference between noise and music, or does it then reach a point where it's kind of indistinguishable? Um, not to get like all, um, I don't really believe in a distinction. I don't really believe in a, in a distinction between noise and music. And I know that you know we can sometimes when we're talking about things we use the term noise and we use the term music, and I do the same thing. But for practical purposes i don't think of a distinction because music 
is any sound, any, any organization of sound that presented as such elicits an emotional response from assuming like we're making music for people, a person. <laughs> in, in that case, any sound, any quote-unquote noise is music if it is presented as such and eliciting an emotional response from uh, its listener. Uh, so, and what, what exactly was your question? <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, that was exactly it, you know, okay. whether there's a delineation between the two, because some of your, your scores, your solo work, when you're looking at it from a more conventional mindset, it can lead people to say, oh, this is, this is just noise. But like, for someone like me, who's more, more open to that, it doesn't. You know, it's, it's funny, you, you saying an emotional reaction from a human. I was, I was listening to your first album earlier, just on my speakers, and it, it got an emotional reaction from my cat, too. Like, she hated it. Which one is this? The first solo record? Yeah, your first solo record. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, cats, <laughs> cats hate that one. It's terrible. It, it's a real flop. But it's interesting mentioning the you know the reaction, the noise element, because I think kind of surprisingly, there are quite a few moments in the film and in the score where you're eliciting a, a, a much more tender reaction to. They tend to be a bit more fleeting or briefer, but like there are moments where you're humanizing Leatherface, and it's something that is, I don't know, it's kind of surprising and unexpected. A little, little bit. Well, uh, ultimately, I'm working with the director, I'm working with the entire production. There are moves um, made to, well, this movie was not simply just a, a, a slasher bit, you know, in that there, there were some moments like Lila's flashback uh, when she's kind of dealing with the with the gun in the garage uh, for that first time, um, where we we need something there that adequately encapsulates and projects her inner world in that moment, and and that's where the biggest challenge comes for or for me for something like this because I don't believe in what I've seen a million times, but I don't believe in doing it where you've crafted something sonically, aesthetically, that, that has a certain character to it, uh, and a certain character that really is completely uh, detached and divorced from, from a, a, like, we, like we were talking about before, from having its roots in recognizable conventional sound source and idiom. And then now that you've got a moment which is playing not as horror, not as suspense, and not as uh, some grotesquerie, You've got a moment of, of real human emotion, and all of a sudden, the fucking strings come out. And for some reason, we've just made that move that, that that's how we as human beings, like, those are the emotors, that, that's the, those are the vehicles of our inner world. And I despise the move. I mean, if you're working with, in the context of something like, you know, say one of my scores, Color Out of Space, I used a lot of strings in that uh, score, and for a more heartfelt moment, String use was completely on the table because it was part of the overall aesthetic, but for something like this, it could, nothing could be further from from accessible for me. So it was finding a way to e extract kinds of real heartfelt emotion from an instrumentation and a, and a modified instrumentation that still felt part and parcel to the overall score, to the overall aesthetic. And so that was the the bigger challenge, and actually a lot of fun. And so what, you know, what ends up coming through there is something like that first Lila scene where you have piano 
there is a bit well now i'm just i'm i'm <laughs> i'm my foot in my mouth about the strings thing because there is like a very <laughs> there's me on a very very janky uh viola um that's been completely stretched and dropped on the ground a number of times but so yeah piano old viola and a bunch of tibetan singing bowls and and kind of the same thing for all of them and this is where the fun for me starts because there's a, you know these puzzles and you 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 look at the instrument of the piano and you go there and you play it and you go okay I wonder if I play this speed and I play these notes and I get these harmonies and 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 these overtones and I mic it here in this way with these mics then I take that I can see that once I take that I'm going to stretch it not too much just a little bit and then I'm going to drop it maybe two octaves and then I'm going to EQ it you know, such and such, compressed, EQ, compressed. When I'm playing it, I can think of th through those steps. And so that then I just come upstairs, I mix through and I get it to where it was in my head before I started the, the process. And, and, and the more you, you kind of weave your way through these processes, the more they become part of the instrument so that you're hearing the end result when you're playing the, the, the initial offering, and which goes for the more brutal moments as well. Like I think today... We just dropped the first track from that record, which is my favorite track in the whole movie. This every last one, which is just this, you know, my my favorite kind of brutal, full on massacre tune, and it's it's like a it's like a fucking sludge metal. It's a dirge. It's awesome, and it was the most fun that I I had on the score. It was just it was so freeing to just fucking for for so long. And when the lead finally comes in, this this screaming refrain it's a turkey call it's a little diaphragm looks like a just kind of looks like a little piece of rubber you put on top of your the roof of your mouth and then you blow through it and manipulate your mouth in certain ways and that melody is just turkey calling <laughs> but played in a certain way and then pulled and stretched and beefed and and then it becomes this just like this horrible a screeching anthem for a chainsaw that's ripping through folks. I, I love that that part of it, the part that we're finding our way to, where we can see the instrument as being more than the thing that's right in front of you, you know? This thing can sound endless amounts of ways. It, it, this is the source. This creates an acoustic a variety and breadth of sound acoustically and there's a lot of different ways conventionally and unconventionally to use this but then once you've got that captured then you can take it in so many other directions and knowing those and then you know experimenting with those paths means that later on you have all of that experimentation still in in your repertoire and it can be utilized again and again and again and and, and varied upon so that's what it's all about for me <laughs> calling it a fucking sludge metal dirge is like so spot on and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and i it's weird because I describe music like that as, I mean, it is like horrible and grating, but in a really pop, like a, a good way, which I think is like hard to internalize sometimes. But hearing that kind of brutality musically, even stripped away from the film itself, is really exciting and, and visceral and primal. And having that opportunity to kind of be unleashed. Mm-hmm must be great. Was that kind of the experience in the film that you had almost a, a carte blanche to see where you could take it? Or yeah. were there times where you were pulled back? No, I wasn't. And that's why this thing is gnarly. They never 
uh, you know, there were, there were a couple of moments that later on after screenings of the film ended up being changed from something that originally was conceived of musically as being much more uh, dark. And then there were there were moments of more where we were talking about kind of heartfelt humanity, um, for lack of a better terminology. There were moments like that that were kind of musically added expanded to to give a little bit more levity to it but but other, otherwise no i i was told very uh, distinctly in the in the beginning of the process that they were making a a true sequel to what we imagined you know the to the original and keeping in line with the spirit of that one you know we're dealing with something that was very groundbreaking abstract and genre bending in its, especially in its time, and paved the way for people like me to do more things, to, to have a, a much greater breadth of possibility now with our own work. But yeah, I, I was told, I think verbatim, go nonlinear, something like go far out, go nonlinear, go Chainsaw Massacre. That's very liberating. And it's also pretty rare, I think, for um, productions to really give composers carte blanche and to not be afraid of yeah, sticking to aesthetic norms. Most of what you hear sounds very similar to most of what you hear for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's it's less and less, I think, these days, because more and more, as composers, we're given more freedom to explore and to experiment and to innovate. But for a long time, it seemed to me that there was a... And I mean, there still certainly is. Like with, with bigger, with the huge productions, you've got these this mammoth amounts of money and they're really kind of being designed as commodities in, in this way. So they, they have to conform to a certain aesthetic scripture, I suppose, or script. But, um, but more and more, we're, we're, I think we're, as composers, getting this kind of freedom to, to make things truly unique. And, it's, and you can see it you know, happening all over the place. People are really making some, some beautiful and, and like unique work come out of of these years and and it's very i find i find it very exciting but yeah bringing it back to tcm here i was always just it was like being the perfect kind of kid and mad scientist um that you always want to be on these on these jobs where i would just come up to my studio in the morning and then just i would have had some idea in the middle of the night and and wondered oh i wonder if that's going to be how i make that i come to that sound for that moment like that beat really needs something and i wonder if that's the if that's the beat and i come up here and then i take you know first thing i don't have it around so i can't i just can't show it but um the first thing that i did for one of the things that people probably think is is like saws scraping metal throughout the course of it is um a bass saxophone my old bass saxophone like my 110 year old instrument with a tibetan bowl taped onto the bell this way, sealed, and then played massively so that the seal of this against the bell vibrates and lets only air out as you push it through. And then what happens is a screeching, scraping howl that you can control in musical ways. So that's why it still it still has pitch. It still has shape. It's still musically, you know, in the sense of you know, conventional music, it still plays harmonically with its with its context you know that's one of the um, kinds of things that comes out of having you know having uh, carte blanche to to experiment and to explore that and so many other things so 
Well, I, I love the like the ingenuity and experimentation behind creating those sounds. Like I've I've read that the iconic flashbulb sound from the original film was really just them taking like two wires and scraping them together. But it creates something that sounds completely unrecognizable from that. Oh yeah. But going back to getting that freedom Obviously, you've worked in films of all sorts of genres, but a lot of your recent ones and the ones I think you're most well known for are all horror. And you know, from my my experience as a listener and as talking to composers, it seems like horror really gives the most freedom to composers. Is that something that like is that something you've experienced? And the reason why it seems like in recent years you've been drawn to working on horror projects? No, I've heard that. That people think that horror affords more freedom musically. I, I think that it's more that right now there's a shit ton of horror being made. Um, <laughs> just, like, studios are just absolutely going hog wild for horror scripts and making these projects. So there's a ton of it out there. And the studios, in the, they're, very, they're much more open within that genre to exploration. No reason why you can't. I mean, there have been so many different unconventional and um and like truly like new and unique moments in drama and and in other uh, genres of film and so there's there's nothing specific to the genre that gives it more freedom or less uh, I, I really just think that it's a moment in time in the industry and um, amongst in a sentiment amongst the people who are making these th- making these decisions but uh, for my own part i think that early on i, mean, I think i've always been tapped you know, I've been scoring films since I think when I did um, Blue Caprice with Alexander Moore's was something around 2010 or so, something right around there. And, you know, he, he knew me from my solo music and he thought that because of that music and a kind of tension, suspense and and, and like an offset setting sort of uh, nature to a lot of it by his ears that I would be a good fit for his film. And I think a lot of people have approached me in that way um, because when you make, I mean, I like to make people uncomfortable in music and I always have with the solo music, not to in order to make them uncomfortable and keep them uncomfortable, although sometimes that's necessary, but in order to get them off, to, to put them off their balance in order to make them vulnerable, in order to then rope them into something maybe a, a layer deeper in terms of their their attention. And so if I mix my, my, my breathing very, very high and pan it out to the sides and you're listening to one of my, a, a track that I specifically really want you to, to, to hone in on a certain aspect of it, maybe I'll use that as a means of capturing your attention and making you feel a kind of visceral innate and ancestral panic like we'll just do that just for we'll just do that to grab your attention and now i have you and i can take you away with something else something some other part of it that you more you more readily want to attach yourself to because that's propulsion and that's something that that, you know that the music is going to take you into into a place that maybe we'll we'll explore something now that you're now that you're open to it convention i think in a lot of ways can be can be not necessarily so but can be um, something that that limits and and kind of deadens the the emotional response because it we, we all have a autopilots because we have mm-hmm. we have a, a sense of familiarity and if something's too familiar 
certain aspects of our attention just shut off and, 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 we, and we just let them play out again as though they are as they already played out. All that to say, I like employing certain things that are usually thought of as, as uh, scoring to something like horror or suspense and thrillers. So I've done more horror and suspense and thrillers, but I also have done other, other things. And, and honestly, everything is, you can make an un- unconventional score, f- the one that, that uh, evokes every, as- every necessary emotion for any kind of film with any kind of instrumentation. I don't think that it's in any way specific to to the genre, and I really love being able to do a lot of different things. I know that I'm known for horror mo- most, and I, and I'm usually tapped for that. But I think that that mostly has to do with Hereditary because that film was so much in the body, the greater body of my work. That was the biggest splash that I've been a part of. Um, and certainly has had the most legs as a score beyond the film of anything I've done. So although I never really saw it as a horror film, you know, I always talked with Ari early on about that one being, it's like a, I, what did you, I, I think I'm going to be bastardizing what he said, but um, like a dysfunctional family drama couched in the vessel of a, of a horror film. It, it's It's more... The, the splintering relationships of this of this family that that is suffering after a uh, like a gruesome loss and so I played to that I don't I don't really think of Hereditary especially the score as being in any way a conventional horror score uh, I I find it much more um, of a drama interesting I mean I, I think part of that goes to what you were saying earlier about convention people like to box things in in the ways that are easiest for them and when you put it like that hell i think it makes a lot of sense but i'll be honest colin i could i could keep you here and listen to you talk oh, yeah all afternoon but i'll save you from that i'll let you go <laughs> all right man <laughs> i again i i really really appreciate you joining me it was it was great chatting with you today you too thanks for having me